Hello, my friends. This is life coach Mike Chargman, and welcome to an episode of Mike's Search for Meaning. I'm after some big questions. Why are we here? What makes a fulfilling life? How can we grow individually and collectively? Each episode, I'll dive deep with leaders who are doing great work in the world and see how they organize their life. Books read, value systems, resources used, and stories that show how each of you can create the life and the world of your dreams. My guest today is my friend and colleague, Justin Mulvaney. You can connect with Justin at his website, justinmulvaney.com. His socials, his newsletter are all linked on the website, but I'll link them here as well. His Twitter is at Justin Mulves, LinkedIn at Justin Mulvaney. And additionally, I always donate to and raise awareness for the charity or organization of my guest choice. And Justin has selected the organization called Give Directly. This is also linked in the show notes. And please join me in donating to Give Directly. Justin is a conscious leadership coach, and a lot of the principles that we discuss in this conversation are from his training from the Conscious Leadership Group, of which I am a huge fan. One of the teachings of the Conscious Leadership Group, and now of Justin as an amazing ambassador of this work, that really blew my mind when I first came across it, is that all emotions are intelligent. Now, what do I mean by that? Historically, I have had a really gnarly relationship with, let's say, anger, and probably with fear too. The Conscious Leadership Group and Justin not only would posit, but really thoroughly explain the intelligence of fear and anger, where we feel it in our body, what it's communicating to us, and how in the workplace, when we are building strong cultures, it actually behooves us to listen to the intelligence of these emotions. One of the things that stood out to me from this conversation was when Justin explained how anger, when communicated clearly and consciously, can actually help us make an important change. If a project isn't working well, if someone isn't meeting the standards that they set out to meet, and it actually makes a lot of sense when you hear it explained. So this blew my mind in the beginning, but it's really important for us as leaders to listen to the intelligence of our emotions. And Justin goes into great detail about this in the conversation. We also talk about generators of stuckness and and ways that we get stuck and how to get unstuck. There's really basic but profound concepts of above and below the line. And we talk about many of the other things that have shaped who Justin is and his view of what effective leadership is. This was such a fun conversation. Justin is a bundle of energy. I think that you're going to be able to hitch a ride off of his infectious and contagious energy, his passion for the work, and the way that he's really affecting the leaders that he works with. With all of that said, settle in, take a deep breath, and enjoy this conversation with my friend, Justin Mulvaney. All right, my man, Justin, welcome to Mike's Search for Meaning, my friend. Thanks, Mike. I'm excited to be here. Mm-hmm. So I believe you know that I start every conversation the same way, and I think it'll be a really interesting on-ramp into your story, your journey. And as we both know, childhood plays such an important part in the way that we see ourselves, the way that we see the world, our work, et cetera. And a a really cool portal into childhood is our dinner table. It's something that happens every single day. So the question I have is, what was it like at your dinner table when you were growing up? Yeah, I did know this question was coming. And as I thought about it, two different answers dropped in for me. 
And for me, it depends on which era of growing up we're talking about. I moved schools when I was 12 years old, which also, it's, that's a unique time because it's also kind of a demarcation between childhood and teenage years. And if I think of my childhood dinner table before then, it feels really like there's an idyllic nostalgia. There's a lot of love and compassion, an image of like the sun streaming through the windows coming in. Uh, every Sunday night, my mom would make uh, like a bigger family dinner. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was always dessert, which which my cousin and I fondly remember, which was just this cheap chocolate pudding pie. But it was like, God, man, I have so much nostalgia and and love and warmth associated with my dinner table in that era. Mm -hmm. And then when I shift to after then, and I think more of the teenage years, very frankly, that dinner table was a war zone. My dad growing up was an alcoholic and also wrestled with anger issues. And my sister, she hit her teenage years. As I recall in my experience of it, her reaction back against that was also anger temper and so uh, i have memories of those two having explosive fights at our dinner table as a teen and both my mom and i our our temperament is a bit more we, we would withdraw we would hide we, we were more conflict avoidant and so those dinner tables were much more filled with tension and angst and just this, this like i remember just like waiting for the moment where i could be like hey can i clear the, clear the table and go to my room i i want i want to be out of here so there were two very different eras of dinner table for me. Mm -hmm. I was surprised to learn about you when I, when I listened to the amazing conversation you had with Elisa, that you were, you naturally were maybe more introverted and quieter person. I, I experienced one of the things I was initially drawn to about you was your infectious, seemingly bubbly, outgoing energy. Is that... Was that there? I mean, I know we're all complex and that you can be both of these things, but were you, did, did you like come out of your shell more by the time I had met you? Were you, I, I guess, how would you describe what your essence was as, as a, a young lad? <laughs> yeah, I was much more shy. I was much more introverted. I remember being very sensitive as a kid. My, my mom has reflected to me before, like, I felt like you just felt feelings very deeply. And I think somewhere around my mid to late teenage years, I found a social home and slowly self-esteem grew, competence grew. And that's where I learned more of, I found more of my extroverted, gregarious, connected self. And part of that I remember the first time I went to see a therapist, one of them reflected with me. He said, wow, in the first two minutes of meeting you, I felt like I met two very different versions of you, which the first version of me was the gregarious, like, how are you? It's great to meet you, big, open, extroverted. And when we sat in the room, there was really an energetic shift when he was like, so what brought you here? And it was much more introverted, tame, a much calmer energy. And so... This is still something I, uh, frankly, I'm figuring out about myself. 
Mm-hmm. Like there are periods where that outgoing extroversion, charismatic infectious energy feels authentic. And there are times when it feels like a mask. And there are times when more of that introverted shy, like I just kind of want to be alone, go for a bike ride, read a book in the park feels genuine. And also times where that feels like avoidance. And mm-hmm. so in some sense, I'm still figuring out <laughs> who I am across that axis now as I continue to do this work. Yeah, it resonates a lot with me too. I mean, I was really shy. I don't think anyone would have ever confused me for being outgoing and gregarious, but as I have developed socially and and found my home, like you said, that's, I don't think I, it would be hard for me to pick an exact time where I found my home, but we were just saying before we jumped on this call, or I was saying, coaches are my people. And in yeah. a lot of ways, when I talk to coaches, I I don't feel inhibited in any way. But I remember when I was growing up, if I was making a phone call, even if it was to order Domino's pizza or something, that I would want to go hide in the corner. I, I didn't want other people to hear me on the phone. You know, that was a very private, intimate thing for me. And when I was in the right setting, I was very engaged and engaging. And so it's it's really interesting. Like I still feel that way sometimes that I can't talk to, I can't fathom talking to another person right now. There's just no slack in my system. And other times I have this yearning in me to, to be on a stage, like conducting this interview in front of thousands, in front of a full Madison Square Garden or something, or or giving a big TED talk. So I, I find it endlessly fascinating, the different personas, the different dynamics that each of us have. And I, I know we're going to talk a lot about personas and and all the different parts of yourself that you've probably started to make a lot more contact with. So I, I'm curious, I, I love the way that you see the world. And it seems like you you always knew, I'm a little, I'm not going to do the conventional thing. I'm not going to, I'm not going to go to a job where 15 years in, I'll be a partner. And then when I'm partner, you know, I'm going to have all the power and influence in the room. You you knew from a, a pretty way before I did, that's not my, not my gem. So I'm wondering, you could take as much time as you want explaining this, but like what brought you into coaching and, and how do you look at the, I guess the arc of your career? Yeah. Yeah, I knew I wanted to be a coach early in my career. It wasn't pre-entering career world. Like, I, you know, there are some people, my sister was this way. She turned 13 and she was like, I want to be a nurse. And now she's a nurse and she loves it. <laughs> I was not that way. Um, my best guess at what I wanted to be before college was a musician, actually my parents kind of steered me away from that. I resented them for it. Now I think it was probably the right path for me. But it was really within one year, maybe two years of being in my career, something clicked for me. Oh, I want to be a coach. Mm -hmm. And there were two things, I say actually three things that really clicked that in for me. One was... In that first year post-school, I studied math and economics. I studied those things more of like the hard sciences because I was always good at them. But again, I always sensed there was this more like art, 
artistic, personable, like those things weren't inherently energy giving to me. Mm. Like, like the thing that was most energy giving to me throughout high school and college was music and really getting to know people at a deep level. I love, man, I'm remembering now in college, I loved when I would meet shy withdrawn people in friend groups because I loved the game of just like slowly taking my time to like peel back the layers and get to know them at a very intimate level. I also loved the people who I could get there really deep with. Probably my best friends in this world are the people that within like a conversation or two, it's like, man, our souls are out on the table. Mm -hmm. But I really loved when I would meet somebody who they, you could tell there was more under the surface. They were kind of withdrawn, but I could see like, oh, if, if we dance this dance together, we could really get to know each other intimately. And some of my best friends in the world are also folks who we danced that dance together. Mm -hmm. And so the year post-college, I started reading a bunch of psychology. And it was actually like from a, like a self-improvement, how can I be better? How can I learn about user psychology for my job? But I actually just loved learning about psychology and consciousness and how the mind works and our, our biases and the lenses we tend to learn. And so that was just... I was devouring that with such fascination. I loved what I was learning about myself from studying that. Mm -hmm. The second thing that happened was I was working at this really early stage startup in a co-working space with a bunch of other startups. And at some point, I just saw this pattern. I've talked about it before. I've written about it. I call it founder DNA, which was the leaders of organizations, their traits, with their strengths, their weaknesses, their areas of superpowers, their areas of dysfunction tend to get inherited by the entire team or organization that they run. And this was fascinating to me. It was so fascinating. Leaders who tend to like sit back and think a ton and not act a bunch, even if they have a team of 15 people, the whole organization tends to start being that way. There's not a lot of action. They're thinking everything through really carefully for better or for worse. The company I was at, my story was that founder was super action-oriented, kind of chaotic and under-communicated. And so the whole org had a tendency of being really action-oriented, under-communicating, and this kind of, this whole environment of chaos descended. Mm -hmm. And I was like, that's really fucking interesting. That's <laughs> really, really interesting, man. And... I just want to work on that. How how fascinating. Like what happens if we you can work with a leader and coach them to identify some blind spots, start to shift some areas of weakness or dysfunction. That leverage, that's transformation for an organization and its culture. Mm -hmm. And I, I just, that also really turned me on, like the, the impact behind that. I was like, literally for me, it was like, I can't think of a more impactful thing to do. I just can't. And then the last component was actually, I, I was a big Tim Ferriss show listener and Tim did an interview with Josh Waitskin, who mm -hmm. Josh is, uh, you know, he was a world champion, martial artist, jujitsu, chess player, all these things. And Josh had this orientation toward life. Josh is one of his peak performance coach now. And he had this orientation toward life that was both striving for his best, but just operating from profound love and wonderment and curiosity. And I was just like, God, I want to be like that guy. Mm -hmm. 
And I was like, oh, is that what coaches are? And I think it was that trifecta of things that were like, mm, I want to be a coach. This is the line of work that I, I want to be doing, both from a, what it teaches me about me and also, again, it just turns me on and that's the impact I want to have on the world unequivocally in it. And really my career from there, it took me probably five or six years to get to coaching and there was some exploration along, along the way. But my whole career from there, that was my North Star. And it was just, how can I get the chessboard in a place where I can step out into coaching and feel confident mm-hmm. about it? Yeah. So wh- when I listen to you speak about that, there's there's so much that comes up for me. But I think you started to point at the effect that doing inner work with leaders can have the, the trickle-down effect on the entire organization. That if we'll call it integrated. Like if a leader is really integrated, then that is going to have a powerful effect on the rest of the organization. And so one of the things that we teed up for this conversation is the importance of inner work for leaders, for executives. And I I mean, I'm going to catch myself here. I think anyone at any level can be a leader, right? Like CLG, how does CLG define a leader? They, I love their definition of leader, which is anybody who wants to own their impact in the world. Yeah. Beautiful. So it doesn't require that you have any employees. It doesn't even require you be operating in the business world, right? It is simply, as I navigate through the world, I want to take ownership over the impact that I'm having on every person, everything that I touch. I want to take ownership over the impact I create. Amazing. So I only say that to make the distinction that there's, I think everyone who's listening is a leader or can be, it's, it's up to you to decide if you want to own that or not own that. But when I, when I ask you this question, I'm talking about people who have maybe rank or hierarchy at an organization. So what, why do you think it's, what do you think is important about inner work for leaders, executives? Yeah. When I tend to think about this, I think I, Put inner work next to, because inner work is a form of learning and development. It is. And I put it next to more traditional learning and development paths. And I I juxtapose these two things together. And in my mind, when I say more traditional, I think of that as learning skills, right? So there's one form of coaching and training and learning development, which is, hey, I'm getting leadership skills. I'm becoming more skilled at executing things. And I think that's really valuable for increasing your impact and and capability and competence. It's not to discount that. But in my personal journey, in my journey with the people that I work with, there's that line of work has its limitation. Mm -hmm. And the limitation specifically comes around this term that is also a conscious leadership group term, which is reactivity. Right. And what reactivity is, is when something happens that comes in and I trigger myself with it. Right. Something happens where there's some fear that drops in. I feel scarce. Something feels a threat. And reactivity is actually an unconscious reaction. It says something happens. And without me even realizing it, boom, I'm automatically reacting in a way to attempt to fix the problem. And that reactivity in that moment may or may not be productive. 
oftentimes that reactivity was a learned response to something that happened way back when I was a kid, right? So I can, I'll use a personal example here, which is I said before, my father was often angry. And what my response to anger when I was a kid was to withdraw, right? The safest thing for me to do, the way that I can fix this problem when anger shows up is to just withdraw and get small. And that got embedded as a reactive pattern. Now, there's no skill that I can learn, right, that will that combats the fact that every time anger shows up, I withdraw and I get small. And as I go on, right, me being one, because it's automatic, I'm unconscious to it. And now I'm not a kid with my dad anymore. So that reactivity may not actually be effective at addressing, at really addressing the root of the problem. And this is a very niche thing, but this is happening all day, every day. I know it happens with myself, with the people that I work with. Something comes in, I feel threatened, and I automatically react to fix it. And that automatic reaction has a set of pros and cons associated with it. And what the inner work does in my experience is it helps me identify what are those automatic reactions, right? It helps me actually become conscious of something I'm totally unconscious to. That's the, the magic of the inner work as I did it was for the first time in my life, people pointed to blind spots, mm-hmm. right? Like everybody's probably familiar with this term blind spot. I'm sure you are too. But most of the time when I got feedback from people, I kind of knew about it. I was like, yeah, you're right. Okay, sure. I know about that. But in the inner work, there was feedback that was pointed to me that I felt like I was caught with my pants down right? Like, oh, you've, you have, I am naked. I have never seen this about me before. I see how it's true. Oh my God. And so it can be disorienting, but the goal is if we can start to make those automatic reactions conscious and then play with them and do the work in such a way where it's no longer an unconscious automatic reaction, where I can actually come into choice about it, which is the shift from reactivity to responsiveness. Suddenly, my efficacy can go through the roof because all these ways that I'm automatically solving problems that maybe solve them, but also have destructive second and third order consequences. I can see that and start to experiment and choose other things that on net are more effective at actually solving the problems. Mm -hmm. And there's no amount of executive presence or public speaking skills or management skills that solve for that. And so you want both, but what I find my story is that in our culture, we tend to really aggressively index on the training and skills and learning and development. I know that was my path. And at some point, those really start to not have an effect. Every marginal new skill development you have isn't actually moving the needle that much more. And for me, when I found I was at that point, the inner work was explosive, man. It was like, wow, okay, I see all these ways where I'm getting all sorts of in my own way. And as I, as you start to strip those back and shift them, some real magic can happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, maybe, maybe something to underscore that I, I want to say, cause I, I share the same view as you, right? A lot of organizations look at everything as a problem to be solved. And there's a lot of time and energy spent on, well, what are the tools and tactics that we can acquire? solve these problems but what what's really valuable i i want to hear you talk about the, the question i'm going to have behind all this just to, to plant it in your consciousness right now is 
inner work can be really messy. And, and actually, oftentimes, it's very disorienting. So we, we actually take a few steps backward before we start to make meaningful progress. And, and I'm guessing a CEO, executive, someone who's at high rank, probably is bringing in some sort of story of, I don't have time for messy. Like, I don't, I'm not, I can't go into the shop for a couple of months and we, we've got results that need to be generated and things that need to be accomplished. And if I'm not at my A game, then that all that's going to go to shit. So h- how do you work with leaders on, or executives on the, like, yes, it's going to be messy. And, or, may, or maybe the question behind this is what what's possible on the other side of that? What do you think, like, why do you think it's so valuable? Because a lot of times I, I don't think people are willing to take action unless they see the value on the other side of it. Yeah. Great question. As you were talking, one thing that dropped in is, is another clarification about reactivity is my creative capacity is near zero when I'm in reactivity and my vision is really tunnel vision, right? Because what's happened is something's gotten programmed in that says, oh, this is exactly what happens and I need to react this way. And so one, I'm in confirmation bias, right? I'm in a belief about the situation and normally in reactivity, I'm not even aware of that and I I can't see that it's even possible that something else is going on, right? One thing that you'll commonly hear this with leaders is they'll have unspoken expectations for people at their company. And when people then underperform, a number of beliefs can come online. They don't care. They're not working hard enough. And the automatic reaction is I just need to push them harder. I need to, I need to, or sometimes the automatic reaction is I can't say that to them. So I'm just going to shut up and be angry about it over here. Mm -hmm. And it's a really narrow view of seeing the world. It's a narrow view of seeing the world of they, they don't care. I can't say that to them. And, or my, my only options are either to shut up and eat it and swallow it or to go and try and punish them. And it's like, and, and a very common shift that we'll explore there is, is do they actually know what your expectations of them are? Hmm. And if we can get out of this narrow worldview, uh, in that case of blaming the other person, suddenly it's like instead of looking through this tiny little pinprick, you can get look through the whole window. And be like, Oh, a whole bunch of stuff can be going on. You can get really curious about the actual problem space and therefore the set of solutions that are available to you are huge. And so the the argument, that's a really conceptual argument, but the primary argument is if you can get out of reactivity, the amount of space for you to approach this problem, it, there's just a spaciousness. There's a, there's a curiosity, there's a learning, there's, there's so many more possible solutions and end results are available. You also asked the question, what, what was the specific question? Something Something around... I Why tend to be a word vomiter. Kind of, yeah. right? Yeah. So somewhere in that word vomit, I what I was getting at is a lot of times this work is messy. And like, how do you, I guess I didn't, I really just wanted to ask more about what's on the other side of that. What's, what's possible from doing this work. But I think it's also helpful to address 
Like, what is that? What's that messiness? And how do you support people through these transitions? Like there's a lot of times there's grief in changing who we are. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one thing that I would say is if I were working with somebody in who was coming into coaching and this was a concern, I would actually explore, well, yeah. Are you in a place where it makes sense to get messy? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not here claiming that everybody should be going through deconstructing their reactivity, deconstructing their automatic patterns, challenging their beliefs. I think there are, it's my preference for how I navigate through the world, but I'm not saying everyone should be doing it all the time. And so one thing that I might explore is, well, what are the pros of not getting messy and what are the costs of not getting messy? And normally I think a lot of leaders, if they have any baseline of awareness or emotional intelligence can start to sense when what I'm doing while it's clean in here is actually causing more messiness out there. Right. And so I'm clean in the fact that I'm running this, I'm doing the same things I always do. I'm playing the same games that I always play, but it's not working out there and it's making a mess of things out there. And then it might be cool. So maybe it makes sense. Like it's already messy out there, right? Your team's already in dysfunction. Some of your peers are mad at you. Things aren't going so well. So really what we're talking about is, do you want the mess you know, or do you want to get messy internally and see if you can find a new mess that's a little bit more productive, right? And the mess, like we use this term messiness. Uh, I keep liking to come back to this analogy of like learning to ride a bike. The messiness is really you've been running the whole time and running isn't working for you anymore. It's not getting there fast enough. And so what we're looking for is a new way of operating for you. That's like riding a bike. And the messiness is actually, you're learning something brand new, right? You've blamed your, your historic thing has been blaming your team and pushing them harder for underperforming. And now that's not working. It's demoralizing your team. It's they, they, they're pushing back against you. Churn and attrition is high. And so what you want to do is you're saying, Hey, I want to find a way to operate as a leader without blaming and criticizing my team. And the messiness is you have no idea how to do that. (laughs) In the same way that when you first learn how to ride a bike, you have no idea how to ride a bike. And so it's like, yeah, you're as you learn to ride a bike, you're going to fall. You're going to scrape your knee. It's it's going to hurt sometimes, but the end goal is this vision of I get to ride a bike and get going even faster. And so yeah, I think part of the game is can we paint a vision of the possibility on the other side of shifting out of the current patterns and into a new pattern. Mhm. I love that. So emotional intelligence is is a phrase that you brought up and I love hearing you riff on what it is because I think there's this is another organizationally I think a lot of there there are trainings on emotional intelligence and they are not among other omissions incorporating the body or honoring that every emotion is welcome in an organization right I think there's like a literacy and let's be aware of what they are, but also a a lack of utility in a lot of organizations. And so I I would love to hear you talk about why emotions belong in the workplace. The intelligence, Mike, I I love the way that you actually deconstruct the intelligence of emotion. It's emotional intelligence. Yeah. 
I like to start this by talking about for me personally, and I think what our a lot of what our culture holds was, which was the old paradigm of emotional intelligence for me and the new paradigm. The old paradigm that I held and a lot of people around me held was emotional intelligence is I know that I have emotions. I know that other people have emotions. I can track when they're feeling emotional and I can have some empathy for the fact that they're feeling emotional. And then I can and will adapt my behavior accordingly, right? So if I sense that you're sad, I'm going to come in and give you some love. If I sense that maybe you're mad, I maybe will give you space to, to be mad or something like that, which is fine, but it's, it's just limiting. And uh, Elisa and I had the conversation in the School of Unlearning where we pointed out a lot of uh, that paradigm of emotional intelligence also tends to make certain things bad, like anger is bad. There are things like fear is bad. There are things to overcome. And that inherently can pit me against my emotions, which for me has been a good reactive strategy sometimes, but has some serious limitations to fight when those emotions come up. Mm -hmm. The new paradigm that I've learned is all emotions are intelligent. And I actually want to paint a picture now, equally as much for me, of what the model of a really emotionally intelligent person is. Which for me, high emotional intelligence is, one, I am aware when emotions come up in me. That's one. I'm just aware when emotions are here. Two, I allow all of my emotions to be here. I don't try and fight, fix, solve, make them go away. And really specifically, what emotions are is they're actually sensations in the body, right? And so one huge component of emotional intelligence is developing capacity for intense sensation in the body without needing to do anything about it. Hmm. And I've been really playing with this in my meditation practice recently of, of fully experiencing all of the sensation in my body and even letting that get really intense at times to just build my capacity for allowing sensation in the body without reactivity. Because that's actually where a lot of reactivity starts is I'm starting to feel an emotion or a sensation that I don't want to feel, that I deem as being not okay in my body. And now, boom, I'm out here trying to do shit so that I either don't have to experience it or I can fix the cause of that sensation, right? Mike is angry, which is making me feel uncomfortable sensations. And so now I need to do something to either <laughs> stop Mike from being angry or to get the hell away from this. That's reactivity. I am reacting to not experience a sensation in my body. And so emotional intelligence is I'm aware of them. They're here. I fully allow the sensations to be here, the emotion to be here. If my body needs to move, to move some of that energy out, I let it. This has been a really powerful practice for me with anger because it's, Sensations are energy that wants to move. And so the idea is I'm not trying to hold my anger in or just be with the sensation. I'm trying to allow it to be here and then find, is there some way that this 
sensation wants to be moved through my body. Again, not from reactivity, not from trying to solve it. I'm not trying to stop being angry, but I just want this emotion to express. I've been having a lot of fun with them. I have it here. There, there are these, this product called a damn it doll. Okay. So there's these stuffed <laughs> dolls. There's a poem on it. Whenever things don't go so well and you want to hit the wall and yell, Here's a little damn it doll that you can't do without. Just grab it firmly by the legs and slam it. And as you whack the stuffing out, yell, damn it, damn it, damn it. (laughs) (laughs) And it's great, man, when there's just some anger that shows up and some energy wants to move just to pick this thing and just, I will literally just rail it against my desk. With the idea of being, let's just let some of this energy move. It has permission to be here. Let me let the energy move. And then the the last step of a really emotionally intelligent leader is what is the intelligence of this emotion? What is it pointing to for me? And again, another core step, reactivity would say what it's pointing to, I need to go do something about it right now. But no, an emotionally intelligent leader sits back and will go, what's it pointing to? Let me just get the information here. This emotion is getting here. Oh, I'm angry because that project didn't go well and it's because we We didn't communicate so well. The way we communicated wasn't in service of our people. And I don't need to necessarily go out and yell at everybody to fix my anger, right? The anger gets expressed through emotion. And now I have data Mm, that wasn't in service of my people. What do I want to go do about it? Fear is often just pointing to something to be learned or faced. Oftentimes for me, fear is pointing to this could fail. This might not work. And if I, if I can just be with that in the sensations of my body, I don't have to start worrying and catastrophizing. Oh my God, this could fail. It's just, no, there's, it's just data. Of course it could fail. Everything could fail. There's no sure bets here. And so an emotional intelligence leader allows all of this through so that one, they have all of the information available to them. And two, they're not going out and reacting in ways that aren't actually helpful for what's going on. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I paint a picture of that being so valuable in the workplace is because one, the cost of suppressing emotions is high. The energetic cost is unbelievably high. Like when you're anger, suppressing anger, I don't know about you, but if I have to suppress anger for half an hour, if I choose to suppress anger for half an hour, have to, funny, noticing that language flag. If I choose to suppress anger for half an hour, I am exhausted afterwards. Mm-hmm. If I choose to go about my day and have fear there, but not acknowledge it, I am absolutely exhausted at the end of my day. I actually think this is probably a huge reason why people at the end of their work days report being exhausted. It's because there are all these emotions that come up and the energy that is used to suppress and ignore and not face those emotions, it is like... I say this to people all the time, not to my clients. You are driving with your parking brake on, (laughs) right? Like you are, you are driving down the road with a parking brake that it's just every step you take is just, or you are running with a parachute on your back. And so one reason is just, God, all the energy that is fucking wasted suppressing emotions. And the second is there's a, ton of good data there. So let's source the data. If if Mike is mad about how some aspect of the project is going, I want to, if I'm really emotionally intelligent, I want to know about that because his anger is pointing to something that's not working well and can make us better. 
somebody's afraid they're pointing to they're they're noticing something of oh this might not work this might not go well we need to pay attention over here i if i'm a leader i want to know about that and i want my whole team to be fully energized and energetic integrity and that's the case for emotional intelligence and really allowing emotions at work mm-hmm. if nothing else i i really love the analogy, the metaphor that you used around driving with your parking brake on. I mean, it just, it just frees up. There's, there really doesn't have to be that much more to it. It just frees up your energy. You're more creative. You feel like you have more agency, more options, more energy. Like I think all these, all these different tools and tactics we have are attempts to optimize for energy and learning your emotions and how to move through them is fucking powerful. I also love, I'm writing down as many things as possible so I can link them in the show notes. I love the diamond doll and, and the poem. So I'm going to, wherever the Amazon link is, I'll, I'll make sure to link to that in the show notes. One of the things that happens, like I'm going to raise both my hands here because I'm the most guilty person of this. It happens to me all the time. I look at all of these learnings, the intelligence of emotions. I really understand them but it still feels like the goal is to never, ever be reactive and to always be above the line. Right. And I, that must be incredibly common with people that you're working with. So how do you help? You could speak from the, from the eye or the work that you do with others or just your observations, but why is it not bad to be below the line? Yeah. Oh, I'm smiling and giggling so much because it's so it, it, it is a constant challenge in this work and a projection that we all have, right? Some things are better, some things are worse. And so just briefly, in case anybody's listening who doesn't know it, above the line, below the line, conscious leadership group model. It's the first question of conscious leadership, which is around whatever issue. Am I presently above the line or am I presently below the line? Below the line is what we said before. I'm in reactivity. I'm in a state of threat. Usually I'm in a state of righteousness. I'm claiming that this is the way things are and I'm attached to that. And above the line is I'm in a state of openness, curiosity and learning and responsiveness. And again, Reactivity versus responsiveness. Reactivity is a reflex. It's automatic learned. It's unconscious. It's like when the doctor hits your knee at a doctor's office and your knee just kicks out. It's literally that. Where responsiveness is conscious choice. I see what's going on out there in the world. I see what's going on in here, inside of me, and I get to consciously choose. The tendency, as I'm sure everybody who's listening is, including me, is to go, oh, above the line. That sounds way better, right? (laughs) I want to be there. And also when people start the work, normally it's, I am there all of the time. That's just where I am. (laughs) And the deeper I've delved into this work is, oh, no, I am below the line all of the time, all day long. Like, it is actually rare that I am above the line. Right. Becoming more common. The two responses that I'll, I'll actually the three responses that I'll say. One is, this is a Jim Dethmer quote, but he says, nothing is more dangerous than a leader who's below the line, but claims they're above the line. And Jim Dethmer is one of the heads of the conscious leadership group. So that's one thing 
it is a very precarious state to say, no, I'm not in righteousness. I'm not in reactivity. I am above the line in openness, curiosity, and learning. Because then you're fooling yourself and can't really do any work from there. You're stuck. Mm -hmm. You're stuck not facing what's really going on. The second thing that's been helpful, and this is Diana Chapman, the other head of the conscious leadership group says, listen, you are a consciousness inhabiting a meat sack, right? And your meat sack, your body is hardwired to get reactive, right? Like you are hardwired in your physiology to look for threat, get into a state of threat and reactivity to fix the threat. And so going below the line is perfectly natural. You're actually wired to go below the line. And so you're below the line, no problem. Absolutely no problem whatsoever. And the third thing that's really been the orientation for me is if I'm around something and I'm the, the actual question I ask myself isn't, am I above or below the line? It's actually, I'm going to assume I'm below the line and see how that might be mm. true. Mm. And the reason why I choose that orientation is because that maximizes my opportunity to learn about myself. Mm. Because if I'm below the line and I can own it, ooh, I get to learn, oh, what about here is triggering me? Why, why am I getting so reactive here? What feels like it's a threat? What's the belief that's limiting me from seeing the full perspective of this thing? And if I can go in and I can really do my work around what's making me below the line, it doesn't just transform this issue. It transforms me and my relationship to everything. And so for me, the, the being honest about above the line and below the line, and even being honest about my desire to be above the line. Yeah, great. I really want to be above the line all the time. But being honest about that actually lets me maximize my learning and transformation, right? Whereas this, this desire to be above the line is actually egoic, right? My ego is telling me that's better. It's actually a reactivity <laughs> for me to want to be above the line, right? Yes. It's funny how that can always move up a level, but that's really it. It's like, I want to be the honesty around that question is what allows for me to maximize my learning. And that's the stance. And also sometimes we still think we're above the line and we're not, and it's no problem. Hmm. Well, I, I love the stance of let's just assume I'm below the line because I'm probably going to learn more and grow more from that. So I'm, I'm definitely taking note of that. Something else. And I'm for me, that's also a direct combating of my wanting to be above the line. Right. Cause I still do sit there. I still sit there. And I'm like, no, oh, I'm above the line. I'm in curiosity, openness and learning. It's like, well, what if just for a moment I, and, and my confirmation bias will make me look for things that tell me I'm above the line. And so that for me is just an honesty check. Like if I assume I'm below the line, can I find anything here? Am I judging or criticizing? Am I suppressing feelings? Am I overwhelmed? Can I find anything? And if I can find one thing where I go, yeah, that's happening, then I go, great, I am below the line. Mm -hmm. And so let me go get my learnings here. Well, if you couldn't tell, it's the same for me. It's uh, there's still lots of parts of me who are jumping around screaming. It's all about above the line and we're always above the line, baby. And so I, I like the invitation to do the same for myself. Something else I'm in touch with here is paradoxically, if we like when you're talking about working through anger, 
if the goal is I'm going to, which another tendency of mine, if the goal is I'm going to feel my anger, but only because the outcome I want is for anger not to be here anymore, it's much more likely that the anger will remain there. Whereas, and same for looking at below the line, like, all right, I get that I need to allow myself to be below the line to get to above the line. I, I hope I'm not sounding too jargony, but if we can't actually just sit in the thing that's happening for us, it's it's hard to make the shift move. And that's been a really big opportunity for learning and growing for me is actually, can we really, really, like, what if anger was just going to be here for five days? Can we cozy up next to anger and say, yeah, we welcome you. We, we totally welcome you here. And I think it's really, that's an important distinction to make. We can be really slick. I can be really slick and say, I want to feel this thing just because I know on the other side of it is, is something that actually feels a lot better to me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's either that is suppression or bypassing, mm-hmm. right? Which is. I don't want this thing to be here. So I'm either going to suppress it or bypassing is I'm going to actually perform a bunch of techniques that I know to try and move it through and get to the other side. Mm -hmm. That's actually something interesting about every inner work tool is I can do it in earnest, in allowance of what's here to be here, or I can go through the motions to just try and move it on through. And you're absolutely right that this is for real embodied work. This for me is the meaning of embodied versus just a mental reframe, right? Mm -hmm. This is where a lot of people try and shortcut going from below the line to above the line is they just mentally reframe a bunch of stuff, right? Like one question that's common is, you know, one big sign of being below the line is I'm criticizing and blaming. And you go, well, would you be willing to drop criticism and blame? And people go right up to their head and they can see how it would be better to drop criticism and blame. And they go, yeah, (laughs) including me. Right. And then you go, well, are you actually dropping it? Uh, Yeah, I think so. And sometimes it's the the shift there is like you said, we want to go through it and we want to be honest about it. And it's like, well, would you actually, it's not gone. So would you just let yourself be as blamey and criticizing as you actually are here for a minute? And just let that part really rip, make it really big. And then tell me, why should you be criticizing and blaming? And why shouldn't you stop? And just be really honest. And the goal there is to actually just, we're not trying to shift. We're trying to expand awareness. Because in my experience, if I really bring the whole thing into conscious awareness, okay, I'm criticizing and blaming my partner right now. I'm criticizing and blaming them because if I don't, then the fault might lie on me. So I have to criticize and blame them. If I don't criticize and blame them, then ooh, I'm actually just scared about the situation. I don't want to feel that. So I should blame them. Uh, and why I shouldn't stop is, yeah, well, those things. I don't want the, I'm afraid the fault would blame on me and I'm afraid about the situation. And suddenly I realize if I can get honest, oh, this criticism and blame is actually because I'm scared. And now- I'm going out and criticizing and blaming her. It's hurting her. And when I hold the whole thing in my honest awareness, oftentimes the shift just happens naturally because I go, well, shit, I don't want to be doing this anymore. And that for me is embodied transformation through what's going on, as opposed to shortcutting the whole thing and going, "Eh, I don't really want to be criticizing and blaming. So I'm just going to 
go up into my head and try and drop it. It's like, no, can we really ins- let it be here? Inspect why you're doing it, why it actually makes total sense to do it, why you really don't want to let it go yet. And just what are the pros and cons of that and hold all of that in honest awareness. And then the shifts tend to happen on their own. I'm really impressed by you, ma'am. And there's there's a lot of different, there's a lot of other CLG things we can talk about. Like I, I'm finding myself curious about how you look at integrity because what we're pointing to in a lot of ways is integrity, like really owning what's what's truly here right now. But I want to unpack a little bit about how you have been most transformed as we've been talking a lot about the Conscious Leadership Group. Before we decided to do a podcast together, I have told you repeatedly how much I have seen you shift in your own in your own life and in your way of being. That's really the simplest way to put it. Your way of being is completely transformed. I have noticed more of a tenderness and integrity in you. And it's helped me show up more fully whenever we arrive together. So I'm wondering if you could walk us through your experience in getting certified as a conscious leadership group coach. I know that it's still in process, but so much has already shifted for you. What is what has that shift been? Like, well, how has your way of being become such that I feel incredibly safe being in your presence? Yeah. Well, one of the most transformational notions, ideas that has facilitated my journey through CLG. There, there's so much here, but th- they're big proponents of the Enneagram, mm-hmm. which I that it's a personality spiritual typing tool. I have used a lot of these tools throughout my life. Disc, Big Five, Myers-Briggs, Strength Finders. Enneagram was one that before Conscious Leadership Group, I really discounted as being kind of woo-woo spiritual. But they have used it in such a beautiful way. It's been very transformational for me. And the type that I am, so Enneagram has nine types and I'm a type three. I lead with type three, which is type three is called the achiever. And the hallmark, each Enneagram type, basically they say there's a worldview you're in, you've inherited when you were young. And there's a kind of default behavioral or, and thought patterns that come with that, that end up being limiters in your full authenticity and integrity. And Enneagram 3's worldview is something like, um, I need to do things uh, and create an image of success in order to insert, like, be safe, be loved, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And the vice of an Enneagram 3 is deceit. But it's it's unique because it's not just, it's not I'm deceiving you out here. It's not I'm going out and I'm lying to everybody. It's actually self-deceit. I'm not being fully honest with myself about what's going on here. Uh, When I initially got typed as a three and still to this date, I hate it. I hate. (laughs) (laughs) I still have that word deceit. There's a lot of where I've got challenged in the group is uh, you're performing right now. I experience you as inauthentic right now. I think you're hiding something right now, which for me, especially somebody who cares about the inner work, I, there's always like an, Ugh, I hate being called an authentic. I hate being called performative. I hate it. But 
I, I've learned so much about myself from being challenged and like, Justin, how are you trying to create an image right now? Or yeah, in what way are you even deceiving yourself around what's going on here? And actually reaching back and finding a lot of compassion for where those patterns initially came up, which I think, as I said earlier, that was my way of adapting to the environment I grew up in, right? My father was an alcoholic, could sometimes be angry, but also my father could was could be a profoundly loving and warm father. And so I, what I make up is the behavioral pattern I learned is, you know, monitor what's going out there. If I deem it safe, show up in authenticity. If I don't, project an image or do something to kind of make it safe. And so a lot of my journey in my inner work has been around just vulnerability and being willing to be known in the parts of me that I don't like. That's a huge one for me is I, I have such a big inner critic, which was really pointed out to me by one of the coaches very early in the program. He was like, if I have one wish for you in this program, it's that you could get your inner, inner critic to be a bit more quiet. Mm-hmm. And, and so a lot of the journey for me has been sourcing my own approval and appreciation and love of myself such that I'm operating from there. And then vulnerability and authenticity comes easily because I'm not saying that I'm unsafe absent your approval. Because that's been a big script that was running here. So much so that even in the program, probably, you know, there've been a moment of really transformational moments, but one of the more transformational ones is they they encourage us to play with different personas, right? Which were, you can think of personas as, let's go back to reactivity. There are these automatic sub-personalities that come up when we're in reactivity. Oftentimes we learn them really young and they have a shape of almost like a character. It's really fun to play with them in this way. And one that I was playing with was I need your approval. I named it. And I was going around begging everybody in the program for approval and going back to moments where I interpreted as not getting approval and telling everybody, I can't believe you didn't approve of me here. (laughs) And then someone reflected back to me. He was like, I don't experience you as needing my approval. I experience you as needing my love. It's like, you are desperate to get love from all of us. And I was like, shit, you're right. And so I just kept going and and, and playing around with that. And it was a huge realization. I got a lot of beautiful coaching of some people pointed out, like, if and when you get love, do you even let it in? Mm. And the answer was no. No, I use it. I actually had an interaction with somebody very recently this morning in the program where I said, I actually had the realization of, no, I actually just use it as evidence to get my inner critic to shut up for a minute. I don't even feel it. I just go, look, somebody said something. I mean, do you see like, just shut up for a minute. I did something well. And so a lot of my work has been both being able to be more open in vulnerability when I tell myself, Ooh, I need to, project an image of being competent and safe or or an image of being competent and good at what I do and and happy because that's what creates a happy or or that's what creates safety and and abundance and actually letting myself 
be vulnerable. And a huge component of that has been learning to fundamentally be on my own team. And I actually think that's an incredible line of work for a huge proportion of people and something I work on a lot with my clients because almost always in this inner work and inner critic comes up and there's just this moment of like, are you on your own team in this or are you just beating yourself up every damn day? And it's amazing how much has shifted for me as I've, I mean, I'm still learning it. I, I think it'll be a lifelong learning for me, but learning to like fundamentally be like, dude, nothing's missing. I approve of you. I appreciate you. And learning that. Couple, a couple of follow-ups in here. One, I'll start with the ones I, I, I would perceive are, are quicker answers. So what, what are some ways that you are actively allowing yourself to receive love, whether it's from yourself or other people? Yep. One is just like a reminder on my phone regularly in a journaling practice that is, what am I appreciating about myself right now? I've actually been doing this with all of my clients recently at the end of our calls. I think I did it, Mike and I, you and I are in a mastermind together that I run. I think I did it at the end of the the mastermind, which is just finding the space inside of me that's like, what do I genuinely appreciate about myself right now? Loving kindness meditation has been really helpful for me, both toward other people and for myself. God, just, just repeating, may you be happy, may you be healthy, may you be free from suffering, may you be at ease in your relationships and community. And just holding that toward myself and noticing what comes up in my body around it. That's been big. And I actually think I played this with you recently before a call, noticing my automatic tendency of when approval does come in from the outside or not even approval, positive feedback, appreciation of not actually letting it in, but just that thing that I said before of just using it, going, okay, cool. Somebody said something good about me. I'll use that to alleviate the tension and taking a blip and going, finding the appreciation that I hold for myself in that via your words. Because really when I feel appreciation, it's always me appreciating me. You might appreciate me, but if I experience appreciation, it's me finding that appreciation for myself in me. And so actually taking a step back and pausing. And, and when you say, man, you this mastermind has been really transformational and I make up that's because of your work. Not going, okay, cool. Mike thinks it's better now, but going, wow, Mike is seeing something in me. He's seeing, wow, I appreciate how much better this mastermind is for my work. And actually having an embodied sense of that. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there's times that these things feel like a lie. Like, what do I appreciate about myself? And you write something and be like, no, I fucking don't. I don't appreciate yeah. that about myself. And I would imagine I make up that one of the voices, the personas in you that would have that opinion is your inner critic. And so the kind of black belt Jedi move that I know that you know is is to maybe put your arm around your inner critic too and and say this guy is trying to he's he wants something for me so it self love can just be showering yourself in things you appreciate about yourself but I think the the even deeper work is around how can I befriend like you said the parts of me that I don't have not ever liked about myself so what is what does that look like for you yeah i want to make one point briefly I've been on a kick with this lately of with something like an appreciation or gratitude practice, 
some people will say, well, even if it's not there, just go through the motions, just do it. Mm-hmm. And I say, counter, no. Go and do the work of finding something that you can appreciate. Because this, again, when I think of embodiment, of actually feeling it in my nervous system, in your nervous system, this is like building a muscle, right? And so if you just go and you just write, here's what I'm grateful here, here's what I'm appreciating, and you don't even try and find it, it's like going to the gym and lifting a, a, weight, a weight that's too light for you with, with terrible form. You're not pushing yourself. You're not actually going to develop any muscle here. Mm-hmm. And this is literally like the nervous system, the way learning works is the same thing as building a muscle. You, you challenge a neural circuit, your nervous system goes, Ooh, this neural circuit must be a pro must be important for me. And then goes and myelinates it. So it fires more easily, faster, more coordinated. And so if you notice that you're struggling to find something that you appreciate in yourself and gratitude, good, keep going, mm-hmm. struggle. Because what that's doing is it's sending a signal up to your nervous system. Oh God, this, this appreciation circuit, the self-appreciation circuit is important. I better make it so we're better at using it. And so I'm way on this kick. Go and find it. Don't just go through the motions. Actually struggle to find something to appreciate because that's what's going to make it easier to appreciate yourself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I've been on, but um, your point with the inner critic, yeah. The, it's such a Jedi move to, to actually befriend the inner critic. I found as my inner critic, as I started to work with it, I would really fight it a lot. Like it would be like, man, would you just shut the fuck up? Right? Like this guy is the enemy. If he would just go away, everything would be better. And then what happens is all of the voices in your head, all of these personas, they're parts of you. So if you're fighting them, you're actually just fighting you. It's just an internal battle. And it was a huge shift when I I remember just like, I think I was, the first time I did it, I was sitting at a food hall alone, waiting for an order, just noticing that I was beating myself up. And I envisioned my inner critic on the chair opposite me. And I literally, uh, people around me must've thought I was, crazy. I I am a little bit crazy, aren't we all? (laughs) But I had a conversation. Like I just looked at this chair and I was like, what are we doing? Like, will you just let up? Like what is going on here? And at some point in that conversation, and I envisioned my inner critic as like Emperor uh, Palpatine from Star Wars, you know, like he's got kind of like an evil deformed face with like a dark hood on, you know, he's like kind of, (laughs) and something just dropped in where I was just like, oh my God, you're you're really scared right now. And suddenly it was like, a, like the whole outfit came off and it was just like, there's just a little kid underneath the inner critic who at some point learned, I need to be really hard on myself to be safe. I need to be really hard on myself to prevent catastrophe. For me, it was my parents... I think my father more so than my mom, but my mom has it too. We all have it. They're, they, Other people have this inner critic. You're young. They get scared. They manifest a really critical voice from fear. That feels really bad. And then I internalize that critical voice because I want to avoid feeling that from someone out there. 
And it's a really, it, it is for me fundamentally disintegrating, perpetuating a war to fight my inner critic. And it is fundamentally integrating to envision him, give him a hug, say, I get you, man. I see you're scared. You you hold the belief that you've got, we've got to whip ourselves, We've got to whip me to make it happen. I love you. And also from a place of love, I'm going to, I'm going to have you take a seat. Right. Diana at one of our retreats said to somebody, do you have one who can tell the inner critic to step down? And I make up, it's really important to do that from a place again of love, of loving acceptance. And for me, there's like a real, there's almost a parental and inner parenting work here of looking at the inner, inner, inner critic and going, I see you're a scared child. I love you. It makes sense to me. And I need you to sit down right now. I see you. I fully get you, but it's time to sit down so we can step forward. And that has been really transformational, especially for someone like me, who there's a tendency of really wanting to reject the part of me that I don't like and finding love for those parts be like, wow, I really get where this comes from. That's been deeply transformational. That is why this work is so sacred, man. I fucking love this work. And uh, by the way, a, a byproduct of doing this is then you can have more compassion and love for other people too, because you have gone to the depths of yourself and looked at the parts of yourself that you don't like. And then you are less likely to project the negative thoughts, beliefs that you have out there too. So it does make you a better leader. This is all this does. It might sound a little squishy if someone's encountering this work for the first time, but it's actually really fucking courageous and fierce to do this stuff. Like it's hard work. It's hard. And it makes you, it makes you tougher. It really does. Love, love can make you like, to me, love has made me a, a fiercer, tougher, more convicted, more committed man. Yeah. And I, I say that to say this isn't this isn't squishy mystical nonsense. This is this is gonna help you be the person you say you aspire to be. Yeah. Yes, squishy for me or woo-woo just means not easily explained, mm -hmm. which really is like it hasn't been studied a ton yet, right? It's not necessarily evidence-backed, all of it. Huh. But just because something hasn't been studied or isn't easily explained. Like I'm a math and science guy. I used to write all this stuff off, mm -hmm. but as I've gone into my own experimental process with it, same, it is deeply, deeply transformational work. So I would love to hear you if we transition a little bit here. I like the way that you deconstruct certain things that we, it, especially in this personal development space, a lot of people just default to, what you said before about gratitude, even if it feels fake, just write, just write something down. I like the way that you deconstructed that and say, dig, dig a little bit, find, find the thing, even if you have to squirm and struggle your way through it. And right before we jumped on, you were talking about how you deconstructed imposter syndrome, motivation. Like there's, there's lots of different things that are in my estimation accepted as true about human behavior and development and like what are what are some things that you're looking at right now in your life that you that maybe you you have a different angle on than than a lot of other 
voices in this space? Mm, beautiful question. Let's just start riffing. One thing that I recently had a conversation with somebody is, yeah, I think the, let's use what you mentioned, imposter syndrome. I generally think that label does a disservice to people because it puts it on like it's some disease or some syndrome that I can't do anything about. I'm at the effect of it. And more often than not, imposter syndrome there's something more unique going on underneath it, right? There's an, a vicious inner critic here that I'm letting beat me up. If I just label it as imposter syndrome, I can't do much to it. A lot of the time I find people toss that around from a place of powerlessness versus now there's something going on here. There's a vicious inner critic or there's self-doubt and you're getting reactive in the face of self-doubt. There's fear and you're getting reactive in the face of fear, but actually the fear is just saying, pay attention. The self-doubt might be intelligent. I don't know that I can do it. So what is it inviting me into? So that's a big one. Yeah, I think another take that's really been growing for me is this embodied transformation. Are really having to go through the body for deepest transformations, which is actually directly in disagreement with some more evidence-backed things like cognitive behavioral therapy, right? We can always go through thoughts and beliefs. I think there are frequently thoughts and beliefs there, but really embodying things is very, very transformational. And what we've talked through here, which is going through what's here, not using power of positive thinking or reframes. That is a, a big one for me that is both a shift for me and I think a challenge to a, to a lot of thinking in this space, which is, oh, just, just reframe it, right? If you're blaming and criticizing, just think appreciative thoughts, just to just look on the bright side of things. And again, I, I, I don't think, I, I think that can work in a moment, but if you really want to get transformational, I you need to go into that blame and criticism to understand fundamentally where is this coming from? What is going on? What is the pattern here? And I can't do that if I'm just trying to reframe around it. I need to go into the parts of me that I wrestle with or I don't want to be here. And also, right, the big shift is there's something really intelligent about these parts. They're actually teaching us something about you, your past, your history, what they want, right? And going into them, going into them, there's there's so much there. I, I recently, an example of how this was for me, I recently un uncovered one of the themes we're exploring is resentment in the program. And I recently uncovered a gigantic well of resentment, and as I was going into it, I found my asking like, oh, what's the personas that are in here? And one was the resenter, but one was the fighter. One was one who was just angry and was willing to go to war with the world for what I wanted. And I had this aha moment of, I'm getting chills now, of I've exiled the part of me that's a fighter for me hmm. because I don't want to be angry. I don't want to fight other people. But what I found is this was one who was actually inhabited the opposite polarity of my inner critic because he was unequivocally on my team. Hmm. He was like, I will... I will kill for you, Justin, right? Like I will go out and I will go to the, go to war with the world for you. And while sure, I don't want to be reactive with that part 
I don't want to just be going out and, and fighting it. It was really important for me to find that part and go, wow, would I really love to have this energy in my system more often? And so going into it to become more conscious, to become more aware, like it, it's the whole thing. And here's another thing that shifted to me. The, the game of this coaching and, and consciousness work is not change. That is not the goal. It is awareness. It is, I am just going to continue growing the light of awareness inside of me. And as I, I allow myself to face the truth more and more and more, transformation results. Change results. But the actual process is simply awareness. If I'm working with somebody, if I'm working with me and for an hour, nothing changes, but we get more and more honest about what's going on, what feelings are here, what feelings I'm not trying to face, what I'm really committed to, where I'm really stuck, why I'm holding on to that, why I'm not willing to let go of it, what the costs are, just mapping the territory. Again, transformation results. And so the whole game is just being able to hold everything in a field of loving acceptance so it can all come to so the truth can just flow through. I have a fighter that will kill other people for me. Just hold the field of loving acceptance. Great. Cool fighter, nice to meet you. Let's learn more about you. And that's change is not the game. I'm not trying to change me or change you. It's just holding that field. Is there anything we haven't gotten to so far today that feels important to, to speak about in this conversation? One of the key beliefs that I hold in inner work that's really grown on me is simply this idea of projection. And I think this is really, really key and it's been really key in my work, which the notion of projection, we can think of it a couple different ways, but one is, is my life and my experience of it is, it's like a movie, right? And I, I, the, where we get most confused is I think my stories about the world actually live out in the world. My stories about the world are actually a function of the projector, which is me, right? And one of the most transformational things that I've gotten from this work is every story that I hold about other people, the world, anything is actually about me. And if I can turn it around and find that, that's been such a huge source of transformation. And so... The, the two real tools that I've had, one, this is a, a conscious leadership group tool. I think it's also come from Byron Katie. It's called Eating Your Projections, right? Would you be willing to eat your projections? Which really is saying when, you, when you're out in the world and you're judging other people, are you willing to see how that's actually about you? So if, if you're, let's say you're out there in the world and there's somebody at a restaurant who you think is being really entitled. So they're like asking the manager for all these things. You're like, wow, she's so entitled. He's so entitled. The game to play is how is it true that I'm entitled? Mm -hmm. Because I'm re I, when I think the thought, I she, she, he's so entitled, I'm fighting with reality. And what's the reality? How am I really entitled? And oftentimes I can always find, oh, I'm entitled because I think I'm entitled to them not being that way. 
This actually has nothing to do with them. The entitlement is in here. Right. Or when I'm sitting there and, and I'm thinking, oh, so-and-so is so passive aggressive, right? They're so passive aggressive. How am I being passive aggressive? Well, I'm thinking this and I'm not actually saying it to them. <laughs> right? I'm skirting around it. And so that technology for me has been so transformational of just looking everywhere. Cause then if I can do that work, I can go, oh, I'm being entitled. And then I can actually make space for it. No problem. Cool. I'm entitled. It's okay to be entitled. Well, suddenly there's no problem. I can be entitled. She can be entitled. We're all just here being entitled. <laughs> there's no problem. We all are entitled in some senses. And in some senses, we're not. And so that for me, using my projected judgments on others to find the things inside of me, because when I'm judging something in you, what it's really telling me is I'm not okay with that in me either. I've rejected this part of me. And that is just a, a mirror of, ooh, there's another part that I don't accept. There's another part that I don't accept. There's another part that I don't accept. Wow, this, this person is so blamey and angry and is absolutely not willing to let go of their perspective. That means I'm not at peace with the one in me who is blamey and angry and absolutely not willing to let go of their perspective. Great. I got to go do some work on that. Deeply you, transformational. It, it is. And I have done a lot of projection work as well. And I'm curious, what have been the thorniest projections onto other people that you've then looked at it yourself like, oh God, like making contact with that in me. Fuck that. That's I don't want that. But but maybe speak about the transformation that happens when you can actually accept. Yeah, that is in me. Like entitled, yeah. I, I like entitled, but I'm sure there's juicier ones too. Yeah. Well, uh, let me actually just talk about the ones I'm currently wrestling with. One is still people who are righteous, angry, and, and blaming other people for their problems. Mm -hmm. That one's real. That one is real hard for me. I still get really judgy of God. You're so quick to anger. You're so quick to blame the world for your problems. And you're so righteous about it. Still working on owning the one in me who is quick to get angry at people, blame them for my problems. And really it's just like, no, I'm right about this. I'm not willing to shift. You're the problem. Mm -hmm. Another one is people who I judge as talking a big game, but not living it. This, this in the coaching space, when people are coaching things that I don't perceive them as really practicing, right? So they're out there teaching, practicing, doing these things, but they're not actually eating it. And they're, they're not actually on their own growth trajectory with the tools, you're not actually using the tools. It's not actually working for you. What I've put together there is the part of me that I've exiled is the part of me, what I, what I lose access to is the part of me that can share these tools, even if I'm in a rough patch, mm -hmm. right? Because that's what that can do. If the, 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 the one in me who's like, I don't need to be 10 out of 10 using these tools. Like I might not be using them at all, but I'll still go out and share them and coach, coach on them in the world can be really powerful when I'm in a funk of my own. There's not a crisis of confidence. I can have one who's like, yeah, I'm, I'm not doing so hot at this today, but I'll go out and I'll coach it. 
And so that one, I'm creating some more space and working on finding compassion for in others. I'm wondering if there's any other ones here that I can remember. This is a game that I play so frequently Mm -hmm. that it's hard for me to actually remember really specific examples because it's just, you can, you can play it all day, every day, man. You ever look at them from a, a positive lens? And what I mean by that is maybe if you project onto someone a quality that you really admire, but that you haven't had, that you haven't really made contact with in yourself. So it might be confident. That person's really confident. I'm not confident though. Like, can you walk us through what it would look like to do a positive projection? Yeah. Well, you're, I'm laughing as you point that because I'm going, oh, that that points to my bias of being critical of myself and needing to do work rather than appreciation. Because that (laughs) is another half of the game, right? Which is, if you're going to appreciate someone for something else, it it has to live in you, right? Otherwise, you, you simply couldn't know about it. Right. And so, yeah, the other game that you can also play is going through appreciation and look at, oh, how are all the things I'm appreciating in you true about me as well? Right. Like, Mike, I'm one thing I'm appreciating about you from this call is the amount of beautiful space you are providing me to just run. Like, I feel like you are asking me really insightful questions and then you're just sitting there and just giving me space to just sprint and just dance and and figure out what I want to say and say it and eating that projection. Yeah, man, I really, I'm amazing at that. Mm. It's part of what I'm great at at being a coach. I make up, I'm even playing it sometimes in this conversation with you. So yeah, I see how that's also true about me. Mm. Fuck yeah, man. Well, as we move towards the back end, this conversation, I, I have just a couple more questions for you. And Feel free to chime in if there's other stuff that you that comes in. Oh, yeah, that's this other thing that was really alive for me that I didn't say before. Feel free to interrupt me. But these are more rapid fire in nature type of questions, things I like to ask at the end of the interview. They're not exactly like Elisa's. I'm not going to ask you if a hot dog is a sandwich. So (laughs) (laughs) it's not just to be clear, but (laughs) below the line and committed to being right about that. (laughs) I am so right about that. Okay. Here's, there's my righteous one. Who's not willing to shift. (laughs) A hot dog is not a fucking sandwich. (laughs) Let's put that to damn bed. Well, the, the first question I wanted to ask you at the back end here is what's an ordinary everyday moment that brings you great joy. Oh, Wow. I have an espresso machine downstairs and I get beans from the local coffee shop. Espresso is something I learned in the last five years that I loved. And actually my, my mom for Christmas one year, without me realizing I wanted it, bought one for me. And that morning cup of espresso, my, my partner also got me this really beautiful, like kiln fired from Sweden espresso mug. Mm. And there's something about that ritual of me tending to me of going to get really high quality espresso beans from the local coffee shop. The fact that the espresso machine was actually a gift and that this beautiful mug is also a gift. I And there's just this beautiful foam on top. I, I get so much delight from that as a morning mm-hmm. ritual. Love that. You mentioned books early on in the conversation and 
I, I made a bookmark for myself to circle back on that. You were devouring psychology. What were what were some of the books that made a big impact on you? I'm gonna I'm gonna look behind me right now because go for it. I have there's a fancy bookshelf here where I bought all of the books that were were most impactful. For from a cognitive bias standpoint, thinking fast and slow was really incredible. It's it's an academic tome. I recommended it to some friends who laughed at me and were like, I'm never gonna get through this. I don't know that I could get through it these days, but that was really beautiful. I read Carl Jung's autobiography, Memories, Dreams, and Reflections. I, I love Jung and the way he thinks about the world. He has this beautiful mix of like mysticism, but also scientific thought that embodies that polarity so beautifully. Awareness by Anthony DeMello. Mm. I really love. And more recently, all of the work of Byron Katie. She has a book called Loving What Is that is just an incredible, incredible book. If, If you are interested in getting to the bottom of beliefs, especially shoulds and shouldn'ts about the world, and genuinely interested in inspecting the truth of them and their effect on you. Byron Katie's work is unparalleled. Absolutely unparalleled. Because those shoulds and shouldn'ts cause tremendous havoc. And she has such a way of helping you inspect beliefs and where they come from. And, and, and a lot of her book is her work of doing this with people. And she beautifully chooses some of the most common beliefs that, that cause difficulty. And so that's been my recent bend. And it has been really transformational for me to deep dive into that work. And just, that's another thing that I've been doing all day, every day, just shoulds and shouldn'ts. Is that true? Can I know it's true? How do I feel when I believe that thought? Who would I be without it? Over and over again. Those are her big four questions. Beautiful. What's an unconscious commitment that you are owning in your life right now? And you could also explain unconscious commitments if you want. (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Unconscious commitments are, there's a step in, in the process of awareness in this coaching, which is if I identify myself as below the line, and then when I go honestly into my awareness, I say, I'm not willing to shift, right? I'm not willing to stop criticizing and blaming. I'm not willing to let go of being right. I'm not willing to let go of my entitlement or resentment. What we'll say is, okay, cool. So the fact that this is happening in consciousness is committing you to what is happening, right? I am committed to what is happening right here because I'm committed to relating to it in this way. And that's actually creating what's here right now. And so what's an unconscious commitment I'm currently holding? This is actually an incredibly vulnerable question. Yes. (laughs) Um, And so I'm, I'm wanting to like dig in and give a, a good answer. There's, there's some unconscious commitments in my relationship with my family still. Mm. I'm committed to not being fully revealed to them. I'm still holding back. And in that way, I'm committed to generating some disconnection with them. There's some things in my business as well. I think I'm still committed to making growing a business hard and effortful. Hmm. 
I'm still, I'm really committed to having a lot of shoulds about the way I should be approaching growing a coaching practice and it's ongoing development. And so, God, I'm noticing if you play this game, what you'll notice is there's both a tension and a release in owning unconscious commitments. I'm feeling that now as you're, as I'm even searching for it and I'm going, yeah, what am I committed to? I'm committed to making growing this business hard. I'm committed to making it effortful and stressful. I'm committed to that being the way that it has to be done. That one, there's both an energy and a little contraction and frustration. The family one, there's a little bit of sadness and grief, right? I'm fa- and, and that facing of this is really the unconscious commitment. Like we said before, if I can fully let that into my awareness, some things can start to shift from there. Hmm. Well, you showed me yours. Maybe I can show you mine because it is a tender and vulnerable question. I, because what, what I, what I heard when you spoke about your family in particular was, well, let me back up. One of my core wounds that I have, or these, these beliefs that are at the bottom of all of the drama in my life. One of them is nobody gets me. And a lot of times when I'm with my friends, especially from friends that I grew up with. So who knew, let's say Michael 1.0 before I did any inner work. And when everything was pretty unconscious in my life, something that seems to be true is I'm unconsciously committed to meeting up with my high school friends and really firmly being entrenched in nobody gets me. And so I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm going to withhold. I'm not going to share what's really happening for me. I'm going to say I'm good. I'm going to talk about surface level things. I'm going to make up judgments about them that they, they don't want to go deeper. And like, well, I, <laughs> and I'm more evolved than them. And yeah, I'm going to, and then I'm committed to complaining about it to my wife when we get home. And I think, I I really think that that comes from the unconscious commitment to nobody gets me. And I, and I want, I'm I'm committed to nobody getting me. Yeah. And that's the most powerful manifestation, right? Is take the literal issue that you're complaining about and own that you're, you're committed to it. I'm committed to nobody getting me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. In some sense for me in that I can see how it's true to, I'm committed to my family, not totally getting me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think maybe something else that you've been pointing to a lot in this conversation, which is beautiful, is there's something sweet and and tender about me being just really scared to show myself, right? There's there's like something precious that someone in me is guarding that doesn't that I don't want to be seen. I don't want that one in me, that part of me, to be seen by my friends. And so yeah. I think one of the beautiful things about owning an unconscious commitment is that this well of compassion can start to bubble up. Like, it's scary. It's hard to show your full self to people. They might judge you. Yeah. They might say, yeah. And I would think, can you let that one be there when you're with your friends and not have it be a problem? Mm -hmm. Because for me, one way I can still not shift it is I become aware of that one. And then when I'm in the situation, I wrestle with them. Yeah. which is still not shifting. Right. And so the first step is, can you just let that one who is still afraid, who is t- still tender and vulnerable, be there without it being a problem? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, before I ask my final question, where would you invite folks to connect with you, website and otherwise? Yeah, best place is justinmulvaney.com. That'll link out to all relevant socials, 
There's a newsletter that you can follow there if you're interested in it. I haven't been posting as frequently as I'm getting married here shortly. By the time this comes out, I will be married and probably honeymooned, but um, (laughs) haven't been posting as much, but you can find me at justinmulvaney.com. That'll link out to LinkedIn and Twitter and generally updates can come through any of those channels. So you can pick your pick your place from there. Awesome, man. Well, mazel tov on the wedding. My, my projection of you, my story that I'm making up is you are going to be an incredible husband. So um, I'm really happy for you and your partner. I'll link to, of course, your website, justinmulvaney.com. In the show notes, I'll link to all of the books, the resources, the damn it doll, all that fun stuff in the show notes as well. And the very final question that I ask in every interview is what does it mean to you to live a meaningful life? Yeah, this is a fun, fun question. Head, heart, gut comes up for me. Mm. So if, if I tap into them separately, head says meaning is a construct, right? <laughs> <laughs> so you you make up your own meaning. Heart says it's really to live in love, right? It's to live in the the as much love as possible. And and love can be angry, love can be any of those things, but it's really it's like it's that space, it's that field of love and to, to maximize being connected to that. Yeah, and and Gut says to to live in the flow of your unfolding, right? To just like just be in that yummy flow of self-exploration and discovery and just play day in and, and day out. Mm. That that really feels if I tap in, it's like what what is my meaning of life? Yeah, it's it's to to work to live there as much as possible in that that flow of unfolding and love and play and what what all of those things are. Mm-hmm. Well, my man, thank you for sharing from your head, heart, and gut. No one, no one's deconstructed it like that before in my 90 plus episodes. <laughs> I got First, three let's go. <laughs> from all of my different centers of intelligence. I respond henceforth. My achiever well, says, hell yeah, look at me. <laughs> <laughs> this was a blast, man. It was a blast. I probably could have gone for double the time because there's so many things about you and Conscious Leadership Group that I think are incredibly transformative that would benefit the listeners. But the intention that you shared before jumping on this call was that there's a there's a feeling, there's a sense that when you come onto a podcast that we are on stage and there's an audience of people around us that are taking it in. But the invitation that I heard from you was let's drop down and and maybe I, these aren't the words that you said, but almost like we're one with the audience. We're not up here, audience is down there. So a, a fireside chat type of vibe. And that's the thing that I've most been appreciate, appreciating about you, man, is the the willingness to drop from the performance mode, which we love and celebrate and applaud that that guy's done a lot of good things. But your willingness to drop down and say, I'm, I'm in this pit with everyone else too. That's what I've yeah. read to about the way that you're showing up. And again, my, my projection of you is that you're a committed man who's doing incredible work and and has a strong way of being. What a gift to share that with my audience. So thank you for joining me today. Thanks, Mike. This is a blast.
And to everyone who's listening, man, I hope that you took a lot of notes. So this, this is the type of episode that you're going to want to go back and listen to because there's so many other, there's so many different things that you could take away from this episode. Maybe something I'll drop in that we didn't explicitly speak about is if you're drawn to this conversation, definitely check out the 15 commitments of conscious leadership, which is the group. I mean, the, the book that the conscious leadership group, Jim, Dethmer, and Diana Chapman, who were mentioned in this conversation, co-authored a book and talks in depth about a lot of the things that Justin was speaking about today. It's an incredible resource. In my estimation, it serves not only as a guide to how you can be more self-aware and advance in your career and what, it, you know, any, any number of different ways you can use it, but it's also just a, a beautiful relationship book too. I, I've looked at it as ways that I show up as a better spouse, better friend. And yeah, so I just wanted to plug that in there and, and thank you all for listening. I hope you have a great rest of your day or evening. Take good care and lots of love. Thank you so much for taking time out of your day to listen to Mike's Search for Meaning. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe, share this episode with your friends, and leave a review. I look forward to seeing you next time, my friends. And until then, stay safe, stay well, and keep living with purpose. Peace.